Well, our reading, and we're going to consider it this evening, is uh, from 1 Kings chapter 7, uh, 1 through to 51, so it's a long one. So get ready. Uh, there's a lot of detail here. And we'll do a bit. Whoops. <laughs> Having one of those evenings, aren't we? <laughs> Let's hear God's words. Uh, one. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars, And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and the window was was opposite window and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Uh, Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court... uh, in the other court back of the hall, was, like, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawn with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of of cut stone all round and a course of cedar beams. Uh, So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram of Tyre, he was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for, the making, any, uh, for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top uh, on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows round Uh, the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar and he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection which was beside the lattice work. 
There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around. And so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its, its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured uh, its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand's breadth, and the brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths, which is about 12,000 gallons. He also made the ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. And this was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels were set in the fra- that, that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, above, both above and below the, the lions and oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. And at the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths on the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upwards one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. And its opening were, at its opening were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels that were underneath the panels uh, Underneath the panels, the axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of, the wheel, of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on top of the stand, there was a round band, half a cubit high. And on top of the stand... Its stays and its panels were one piece with it. And on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the space of each with wreaths all around. After this manner he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike, the same measure and the same form. And he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea on the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made pots, the shovels, the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon in the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowls, of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls on the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars. 
and the 400 pomegranates and the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that are on the pillars, the ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots and the shovels and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord which Hiram made for King Solomon were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there was, there was so many of them and the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, the firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this, we uh, pray to help us to focus on the main thing, uh, and help us to get a sense of the glory of God in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're now into the, uh, the third chapter of five, uh, which deal with the building of the temple uh, under Solomon. <clears throat> and as you think about the, you know, the length of time that's spent describing the life of Solomon, that's actually quite a significant proportion of the space taken up with the temple. And why so much time spent thinking about the temple? Well, uh, it's quite a simple reason, really. The, the building of the temple was probably the most, was actually the most important contribution that Solomon made to the life of Israel, uh, the building of the temple. And, uh, <clears throat> and so everything we have seen so far Uh, in this account of Solomon, has served this purpose to lead to the point uh, where the temple is is built and established in the center of Israel. Um, The purpose, of course, is not Solomon's purpose, but it's God's purpose. God has had this in mind uh, for a long time. And uh, in order to achieve that, he has set about, God has set about establishing the throne of Solomon. And so the first couple of chapters, there's a lot of intrigue and uh, uh, unpleasantness as uh, Solomon is established on the throne. But then he is, uh, he is given the gift of wisdom in order that he may set about this wise rule uh, for his people. And at the heart of this wise rule has been the opening up of the way and the, the circumstances for the, the building of this temple that God has promised that he will, uh, build, uh, he will see built uh, through David's descendants. And all of this is of God, of course. Uh, God has been doing this. 
He is the one who promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you haven't got that chapter in your mind yet, you need to get that into your mind. 2 Samuel 7 is crucial to understanding the progress of, uh, uh, of these chapters of uh, 1 Kings. Uh, that, and the promise to David was not that he would build the temple, but that his son would build the temple. And that first of all, the Lord had to give rest on every side. Um, so that so the king could set about the building. David wanted to do it, but he didn't have rest completely. He had, he had some rest, a temporary rest, but not complete rest. And now Solomon has got the rest, and now the way is open for the temple uh, to be built. And this project, as it were, this building project, as it were, marks out a new phase in the history of Israel. And we remember in chapter 6, verse 1, how... Uh, the writer seems to draw attention to the, how it's the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. It's a bit of a random thought, uh, but it's actually a really important thought. This is the next phase in the history of Israel. You see, Israel was, you may remember, was, was captive for 430 years in slavery. But then they were freed. And so they went into the wilderness in this freedom that they had. But it was a wilderness experience of struggle and trial and temptation to unbelief constantly. And so uh, this is the the experience of Israel. And as they come into the, the promised land, they have the experience of having to fight their way in. It's a struggle. It's a battle constantly. Uh, This wilderness experience. And now under Solomon, they have rest. All the enemies have gone. And there's rest. And so this pattern of slavery to wilderness to rest is what Israel has experienced. And of course that's, as we thought last time, that's the pattern that we experience as a Christian church. It's a pattern built into the Old Testament uh, to point to something that's greater that's coming, of course. Because we were in slavery. We were thinking about that this morning, the last couple of weeks and Sunday mornings. How we were once in slavery to sin. But now we're free in Jesus Christ. But now we enter into this wilderness experience. Where there's struggle and there's trial and difficulty. But we're looking ahead to the eternal rest that's to come. If you're following the book of Hebrews that we're doing midweek. Uh, you look back at chapters 3 and 4 and you'll see that. That's the, how the writer describes the Christian experience. of wilderness experience today. But looking forward to that eternal rest that's coming. And so this, is a, this temple building is a great encouragement to us. To remind us of the greater things that God is doing. Not only in Israel's time, but in our time. A marvelous uh, pattern that's true for us. And we look ahead to the glory to come. And that glorious temple existence in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Uh, that's where we're heading for. And uh, this foreshadows all of that in, uh, as we read the story of Solomon. Well, today I want to move, we move on in the account of the temple. Uh, so chapter 6 was um, an account of the, building of, of the building itself and the structure and just the inner decoration and so on. In this chapter, we're looking at the temple being filled with various furnishings uh, in the outer court and in in the inside. And so the main parts of this chapter 
um, in case you kind of got lost in the middle of all the detail during the reading, uh, let me just quickly outline it for you. Verses 1 to 12, um, we'll come back to, but we have a brief interlude between thinking about the the temple building and and then the temple furnishings, because in 1 to 12, uh, the writer's talking about Solomon's palace, and we'll come back to that later. And then we have in verses uh, 13 to 47 the various items outside the two inner rooms. Um, there's a brief description of the, the bronze pillars at the entrance in 15 to 22. Then there's the sea, this great basin, huge basin, and we'll think about that in a moment, um, uh, 12,000 gallons. I mean, I can't even imagine how big that is. It's huge. Uh, 2,000 baths. And then there's these 10 ornate um, bronze stands with little basins on top of them, um, each, each of which are 40 baths or 240 gallons each. And uh, they, they are situated around the, the outer court uh, of the temple. And uh, then miscellaneous um, other decorative items are described in 40 to 47. And then it closes with various other items for the inside of the, the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, various golden items. Um, an altar, a table, some lampstands, uh, some tools and some dishes and so on uh, that uh, are used for the worship of God. Well, there's a number of things we can say about all these descriptions. And remember, we're not thinking about the things themselves, but we're thinking about the significance of those things, the bigger significance of those things. Uh, So some of you are interested in interior design, and you might be interested in all the details. Uh, That's not where we're going to go this evening. (laughs) We're going to think about the bigger significance, the symbolic significance of these things. Uh, And the first thing to do to, to talk about is the is to think about the relationship between the temple and creation. Now, we touched on that last week. Um, but the pattern of the description of the building of the temple is in this way. First of all, he describes the form of the temple in chapter 6. The shape of it, you know, and the size of it, and so on. But then, he comes to chapter 7, and he speaks about the filling of the temple and putting things in to the temple the various artifacts and so on now this this is a pattern that we find in scripture where God forms things first and then fills what he forms with all his goodness this is what we see in the story of creation isn't it that in Genesis chapter 1 the first Days are just, uh, we see God creating these various environments uh, the sky, the seas, the land. And then he sets about filling those environments with you know, birds in the sky and fish in the sea and animals and plants and people on the land. And so he makes and forms the creation and then he fills it with good things. And it's no accident that this pattern is, is being described for the temple. That the same order of things is happening in the temple. Because you may remember last time, we did, a, did point to the fact 
that there are aspects of the temple that remind us of creation. All the palm trees, the ornate palm trees on the walls. And, you know, the, the pomegranates and the lily work and all of these things. It reminds you of a creation. And if you like, the, the temple is a, is a microcosm of creation. It's kind of a picture of creation. And at the center of creation, in all that God has made, at the very center of it, is God himself. You know, there's a view that, that some people have that, that creation is one thing and God is another, and that's true. But somehow God is far away and distant. You know, there were many scientists in the, the 17th century who were deists because they believed that God had sort of wound up the earth and set it ticking away and God went off to do something else. You know, God wasn't somehow involved in the things he created. But God is, his intention in making creation is that he should be at the very center of it. He is distinct from it. So he's not part of creation. But he is at the center of creation in all that God has made. And his intention is to be at the center of it. And you can see the, the increasing glory of the temple complex. Because on the outside, there's all these things that are made of bronze. You know, in the courtyard outside. Which is pretty spectacular in itself. But then as you go into what the ESV calls the nave, or the, the great hall, we call it, or sometimes people call it the holy place, suddenly you're into this world of gold. Everything's gold. You know, all the walls, the ceilings, the floor, everything's covered in gold. You get this blast of glory as you walk in. And then, you know, you go further in if you're allowed to, which you're not, uh, you go into the Holy of Holies, and everything again is gold. And you see the Ark of the Covenant and these two great cherubim guarding access to the Holy of Holies. You see this picture of increasing glory, the gold that speaks of the increasing glory as you get closer and closer to God. And this is the sense of God being at the center of his creation. And that's his ultimate goal uh, for the world that he's made. So this increasing sense of glory... um, and that's one of the reasons why the temple is, um, you know, it, it kind of reeks, <laughs> if I can use that word, it reeks of eschatology. It speaks of a future glory to come. You know, this model, essentially the temple is just a model. I mean, it's a huge thing, but it's a model of the glory to come. It's full of eschatology. And, and you get a sense of the glory of it as you come to Revelation 21 and 22, and the fullness of it, and the amazing future that sits before us. So this pattern of forming and filling is a pattern that God uses in various ways. It actually, you think about it, it's actually what he does for you personally as you become a Christian. You know, he forms you, he makes you a new creature 
in Christ. And then what does he do? He fills you. Fills you with his spirit. Fills you with his fruit. Begins to see all his beautiful fruits. As we're thinking this morning, the fruits appearing in your life. The fruit of likeness to Christ. This is a beautiful thing that God is doing. Forming you and then filling you. As you look forward to glory to come. Well, here's the second thing that we need to think about. Uh, that was a general thing about the temple, but here's a second thing we need to think about. Uh, let's think about these two pillars, huge pillars. Uh, Jachin and Boaz. And they're at the entrance to the vestibule, the, the porch at the entrance of the temple. And they're absolutely huge. They're uh, 18 cubits high, which is something like 9 meters high. Um, with further thing, you know, the capitals on top. And if you look at it closely, you, you realize they're made to look like trees. Because uh, they've got these uh, the pomegranates with you know, the fruit of the trees. And then they've got the lily work on the top. And uh, these beautiful kind of bronze trees that are on the outside at the entrance to the temple. Um, now why so much attention to two pillars? Well, of course, the most important feature of these pillars is actually the names that are given to the pillars, uh, Jachin and uh, Boaz. And it's the names that bring out the significance of these pillars. And the first one, Jachin, uh, the Hebrew here uh, really means something like he will establish a Jehovah, Jachin. Jehovah will establish. Or possibly a prayer as may he establish. So Jachin means, it's all about being, something being established. And it seems to me that this is a, a, a deliberate intention of God to remind his people of the way in which he is going to establish the kingdom and the throne of David that he made. You know, a promise that he made in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse uh, 12, 13, and 16. And you see, God has promised to establish the throne of David. And he's going to do so forever. And it's never going to change. And, and so the first pillar is all about God establishing what he intends to establish in the kingdom. And the second one, Boaz, means something like in him or in Yahweh is strength. In him is strength. And this idea comes up in various places, the idea of the Lord giving strength. Uh, one such place is 1 Samuel chapter 2. You remember Hannah prayed a prayer after she was, uh, a, a, a prayer about her future son. And um, she enters into this song of praise. And at the end of the song of praise, he says, the Lord, she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalts the horn of his anointed. He will give strength to his king. And exalts the horn of his anointed. And so we have these two great pillars. That remind us of these two things. And you know, they, just to repeat again. They must have been spectacular to see. Huge and spectacular. But they would remind the people of God who are outside. And the priests who would go in. That God is a God who will establish his kingdom. 
And he will do so by the power of his might. And he will strengthen his king. And all of that, of course, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the throne. And the kingdom is established in him. That's for another day. But this is a constant reminder of the pillars to the people of God. God keeps his promises. God has the power to do everything he promised. And that's a truth that we need to know today, isn't it? We're not to rely on our strength and our gifts and our ability to build. But all of what is being built depends on God. Uh, It depends on his promise. It depends on his power. So everything that we're involved in, ultimately, is not about us or about our, our gifting and our abilities. It's all about him. And he's going to do it. And that's quite, I don't know about you, but I find that quite a freeing truth. You know, as somebody who came to do the work of church planting here 15, 17, whatever it is, years ago, getting too old, I can't remember. Um, you know, one could easily be bowed under with the weight of responsibility for that. But knowing this actually is totally liberating. But it's not actually about me or you or anybody else. God will do the work. God will build his church. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, you know that he means it. And he's going to do it. We can believe it. We can rest on it. And just press on with the things that we're supposed to do. Because we rest in the promises of God. Well, here's the third thing. Uh, so two big pillars. Uh, let's move on to the, the sea. The sea. So this great, huge basin. Um, this metal sea that's uh, described. And you it's hard to kind of imagine the sheer scale of it. But it's, it's ten cubits wide, which is about, I think, about six and a half meters. Is that right? Eh? Four and a half meters. I think it's bigger than that. Well, anyway. <laughs> it's quite big. <laughs> it's quite big. And it holds this vast amount of water, 2,000 baths, uh, 12,000 gallons of water. It's huge. And then underneath it's got these um, 12 oxen, cast oxen, that are holding up this basin. Uh, So three pointing in each of the four directions. Um, Now what's the the significance of this sea? I mean, it's a strange word, isn't it? Sea. It sounds like a basin to me. Uh, A washbowl or something. But it's it's called a sea. Why? Well, once again, it's to do with the temple as a picture, a microcosm of creation. And that not only are the people of God brought under the rule of God, but even the sea is brought under the rule of God. All of creation is brought under the rule of God. God rules. And God rules not only over the land and the sky, but also the sea as well. Now, it's not just that God rules over the physical universe. Because this idea of the sea is actually used as a metaphor for the mass of humanity in all its rebellion, in all its turmoil. Uh, So, for example, Isaiah 17, verse 12. Uh, The thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. 
The roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty water. You think of the, the sea in the midst of a storm. And that's the way that God is describing this rebellious humanity uh, under the power of the sea. Uh, like it's the power of the sea. And it's scary. And yet, the sea is brought under the lordship of Christ. The lordship of, of God. And so, in other places... For example, Isaiah 11 verse 9, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God rules over the whole of creation and all of rebellious humanity. So that's the sea. Fourth thing, Hiram. Hiram the craftsman. Uh, He comes into the picture in verse 13. And just to clear something up, this is not the same Hiram that was king of Tyre. This is a craftsman who happened to live in Tyre. In fact, uh, 2 Chronicles 2.14 calls him a slightly different name, Huram. Maybe you should call him Huram. Some of the translations uh, of 1 Kings 7 uh, use Huram rather than Hiram or Hiram. So it's not the same person. Somebody completely different. But he is um, a craftsman who, it seems, has been prepared for this moment where his gifts will be used for the glory of God. And his circumstances are somewhat sad. He's, his, his mother is a widow. Uh, he was raised, and maybe his father died when he was young. And he is raised by his mother. And he's learned sufficient skills uh, to, to make a living for himself. And he's become quite skillful. And yet here at this moment, God, as it were, plucks him out of nowhere and gives him to Solomon and uses him for the temple. I mean, amazing. <laughs> amazing. You think that the temple, all its significance, and this little guy gets to do all this and use all his skills for the glory of God. And that's an encouragement to us, isn't it? You know, God is able to use and pick up people who are limited in so many ways and have so many uh, failings and weaknesses, and yet he is able to prepare your life and make you ready so that you can be used for him to his glory and do wonderful things for him. Ordinary people, it doesn't matter what your background is, you can be used of God to do great things for him. It's a marvelous picture about the grace of God working out in a life. Well, the relationship between Solomon and Huram, or Hiram, is that of provider and maker. Solomon provides the materials. Uh, Huram builds and makes things out of the materials. And, you know, there's an interesting New Testament uh, pattern which is reflected in the New Testament um, when you think about the apostles and how they went about church planting, planting churches, uh, what does Paul say about this? He, he talks about how God gives the growth. It's God who, pl- uh, it's, uh, people can plant and water, but it's God who gives the growth. But then he says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. It's like God has given the resources necessary for the work of the church. 
but Paul is a wise builder who then uses what God has given. This idea of God providing and us using is all there in Scripture. Well, there are many more details we could go into in in all this chapter, um, but I need to come to an end. Um, And let me just finish briefly by thinking about the first 12 verses, which we skipped over, and you may wonder why, but I'll come to that now. Um, And and what we see here is a a hint of trouble that's coming. A hint of trouble. Um, So verses 1 to 12 are a kind of awkward interlude, I think, between the building of the building, the temple building, and the filling of the building. And you get these 12 verses that are rather strange. And people have said different things about this description of, of Solomon's palace. For example, one, one commentator I read says that he shows us that civil government is important in a nation, though it's not as important as the worship of God. So it's important, but not as important as the worship of God. Well, I think it's a bit laboured, to be honest with you. Um, I, much as I appreciate that particular commentator, the conclusion is certainly true. You know, worship, true worship is more important than any nation. That uh, even today, you know, the government thinks it's the most important human institution in our country. But it isn't. The Church of Jesus Christ is. And the most important thing that people can do is worship the Lord Jesus Christ in the worship, the gathering of worship. And so, the Church of Jesus Christ is more important and uh, it will one day be seen to be the most important institution of all, all, all human institutions. But you see, there's something else here that we need to pay attention to. And when you, it comes from looking at the details. Uh, when you notice that Solomon spent seven years on his temple, but 13 on his palace... And it's interesting that everything about the palace complex is a number of palaces and everything about it is bigger than God's temple. You know, you begin to wonder, what what is he doing? Why is he building all this splendor for himself as king? You get this feeling that though Solomon built the temple well... He's actually more interested in his own pleasure and lifestyle. Building his own palaces. And I think this is a hint of something that's to come in the life of Solomon. Because as you read on, Solomon, his life doesn't end well. He falls away from the Lord. He experiences a a spiritual downfall. And there are two main things that that bring about this downfall for Solomon. One is, as somebody put it, the the uncontrolled love of women. You look at the number of women that he's married to at the end of his life. Hundreds. (laughs) This uncontrolled love of women. And then also a devotion to personal pleasure experiencing enjoying all the trappings of wealth and power and friends I think this is 
It's quite heart-searching for us. As we think about our, our work for the Lord Jesus Christ and the building of his church. Because Solomon gives great quality to God. You know, there's quality about everything that's described in this chapter about the temple. And yet, nevertheless, he sets about being more interested in his own pleasure and his own comforts. So he's giving to God and yet being more concerned about being, spending more and pleasing yourself. Now, friends, that's a danger for us, isn't it? That we can give our money, give our resources to the things of God here, but far more than that we spend on ourselves and our comforts and our houses and our paneled walls and all these things that the people of Israel were prone to fall into. We can do all that and think we're still doing okay because we're giving to God. Friends, be challenged by that. Be challenged by how you use your resources and what you're, living, what you're truly living for. And we should be carefully and prayerfully considering our lives in the light of these kind of truths. So friends, give, give God your best. And don't let your giving to, uh, giving to your pleasures outstrip what you give to God. And with that, we'll finish. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful chapter in so many ways. It reminds us of the great glory uh, that is ours, uh, that we look forward to. Uh, and we see these, these pictures and these images and symbols that uh, point forward to Jesus Christ. We glory in it. But Father, we pray that we would uh, be careful about how we use our resources. That you would help us to be faithful uh, to the kingdom of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would not put ourselves and our own comfort beyond uh, the, the advancement of the kingdom of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.